welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Collie Bristow's US-UK podcast, a series designed to take US-UK taxpayers uh, by the hand through some of the more common and yet complex aspects of cross-border estate planning with the US. Today, we're looking at individual retirement accounts, otherwise known as IRAs. Um, they're a very common form of estate planning uh, in the US, and they make up a large proportion of the questions that we often get here at Collier Bristow. And I imagine the same is true of my guest as well. I'm honoured today to be joined by John Bull, a partner at the accountants Bick Rothenberg, and the head of their US-UK private client team. He's a chartered accountant, and he spent over a decade in the industry looking at these sorts of questions for cross-border matters between the US and the UK. John, thank you so much for coming in today. How are you? Very well, thank you, Aidan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, lovely to have you. Now, in considering IRAs, we're going to break them down principally into three areas. Firstly, clarifying precisely what they are and why they're so popular in the US. Secondly, looking at their income tax treatment in the, UK, in the UK and in the US. So when an individual withdraws funds, what sort of tax consequences are we looking at? And that can be whether it's the original holder or perhaps a, a potential beneficiary in the future. And then thirdly, we're going to look at aspects related to death. So succession and estate taxes in the US and inheritance tax in the UK. So John, if I could tee you up with the, with the first question, what actually are IRAs? Now, to me as a lawyer, I know that the R stands for retirement. So is it fair to think of them as a sort of pension? Aidan, yeah, com- completely right. It's An IRA is very much akin to a UK SIP, so a self-invested pension plan. It is, by definition, a US-based retirement account. What does that retirement account do? Well, it allows an individual to save for retirement, but with the benefit of tax-deferred growth for funds that sit within the retirement account itself. So why would one invest in, say, an IRA compared to uh, what the Americans call a 401k, an occupational pension? Is it more like in the UK with, uh, uh, say, an ISA where one sort of uses up their allowances and then does, if they've got more funds to, re- to sort of invest, they'll then invest in the IRA? Or is it more sophisticated than that? Yeah, it comes down to the status of the individual, I think, Hayden. So naturally, if you're working for a US-based employer, they will typically have a scheme that will operate a 401k, which is very similar to the uh, employer, employer pension schemes that we have in the UK, where individual can save elements of their compensation, which will quite often be matched by the employer. Um, and there are the real differences between the 401k and the IRA are not in terms of what happens within the account because it's tax deferred growth for both, but really are limitations on the amounts that one can put into one of these accounts each year. Uh, For 401ks, that's slightly more favorable. So between the employer and the employee, they can put in tax deductible contributions and labor the point tax deductible as a tax break for contributions made um, to to both sets of retirement accounts. But the limits for 401k, as I said, slightly more favorable, somewhere around $60,000. But for an IRA, it's much reduced. So tax deductible annual contributions, dependent on age, but either there's a there's either a six thousand or a seven thousand dollar limitation. So con- conceptually, in terms of the amount of contributions, it's not wholly dissimilar to say the UK allowance for contributions to a pension. Uh, we, I was about to compare it to ISIS. In fact, our ISA allowance is higher than uh, that, even in sterling terms, let alone the conversion when you go over to dollars. But in terms of you know the different pots that people will want to invest in and save through in the long term, the IRA is a is a, a wrapper on account effectively that um, provides that tax saving. 
from a US basis. And that is the point we're going to get to in a lot of this conversation. That is not a, uh, a status that is effectively recognized uh, in the UK in certain circumstances, and thus where we find the sort of the mismatch between the, uh, the tax profiles. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the other thing I know about IRAs, and we're getting to the end of what I know about IRAs, uh, is that there are differing types of IRAs, and those can have a consequence, certainly in the US, as to their, um, their tax treatment. And that then flows through into sort of how the UK might treat them as well. So I know I can think of my traditional IRA, uh, and then there's also something called a Roth IRA, uh, Roth without a W, Roth, R-O-T-H. Um, from a US perspective, why might someone use one or the other? And how does someone know, or if a beneficiary sort of an estate is looking at a, a, a wealth profile, how do they know what uh, type of IRA it is? Well, uh, let's take the second question first. That's probably the easiest one. Um, the, the financial institution is providing, um, providing the account, essentially, very clearly designated as to what it is, whether it is a regular or traditional IRA or whether it is, is a Roth IRA. Um, so you then ask, well, okay, well, what, what's the difference between the two? Why do we have two completely different things? Um, well, they are different, but they are very similar. Um, in, in When we talked earlier about tax-deferred growth within a retirement account, the same is true between both a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA. Um, the, the benefit, the perk, if you like, of a Roth IRA is that for US tax purposes, withdrawals are free from US tax. So you have both tax-free deferral whilst the funds remain within the wrapper, within the account, and then tax-free distributions when the funds come out of the account. The other principal difference is that for a Roth IRA, contributions are not tax deductible. The contributions have to be made. There's also very strict dollar limitations, which are based on the individual's income for a particular year as to whether they can actually put funds into a Roth IRA or not. So there's, there's some similarities, but some, some quite key differences. And really, that flows and factors into the individual's and a general wealth plan as to what type of retirement account do they want to use, whether they want to use a combination of both, um, whether they can um, afford to put after-tax dollars into a Roth IRA, get uh, based on the, the dollar limitations that um, So is it the case, uh, so based on what you've said, traditional IRA is effectively tax, ta tax save going in, but tax coming out, whereas a Roth IRA is uh, tax going in, but no tax going out in effect. So they sort of they 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 mirror each other in, 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 to some degree. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's how that's how that's the way my brain thinks of it. <laughs> <laughs> but with the with the same, if you think with the same path in the middle, then yeah. you get tax deferred growth. Yeah, which which uh, is the sort of, which is the the the, the pension aspect of it, which yes. is why why people use them as pension sort of uh, funds because it gives you that tax free sort of roll up over over hopefully a long period of time, and that gives you a greater sort of acceleration of growth. Absolutely. So thinking about uh, tax during the uh, lifetime of the owner, or for that matter, anytime anyone wants to be taking funds out of um, uh, an IRA, what we are thinking about here is principally income tax. We're thinking about what is the tax going to be on that income stream that the person is taking uh, out of an IRA. So 
I, I, I defer to the accountant here. We have talked on previous episodes about the fact that the US and the UK have a double tax treaty between the two jurisdictions, where if one country um, uh, intends to tax an individual on, say, an item of income, and the other country also intends to tax that same individual on an item of income, there should, in theory, in most circumstances, uh, if it's the same income that arises to the same taxpayer in the same sort of fiscal period, be a credit available. That's at least how the double tax treaty is intended to work. Um, doesn't always work out that way. And I know, John, you and I have, you know, undoubtedly talked to many clients about precisely those circumstances where it doesn't work that way. Um, from an IRA perspective, I'd like to sort of offer three different sort of hypothetical situations. Let's assume we start with an individual who is wholly based in the US. Um, so there is no UK tax to consider at all. And then we'll kind of bring in the UK element as a way of comparing the two. So if I have let's say, a sole US taxpayer. And let's say they've got a traditional IRA, because if I'm correct, that's overwhelmingly the more common of the two IRAs that I think we find that our clients have. So let's say they are, you know, let's put to one side the putting funds in. Let's say on the withdrawals, what does the US tax, income tax consequence look like for that person in the US taking those withdrawals? Pretty straightforward answer to that, Aidan, and it's it's income tax. Whatever you take out is, is subject to income tax. Um, to the extent that you haven't made non-tax deductible contributions on the way in, um, which would otherwise give you give you some form of cost basis in your retirement account. But if we if we assume everything that's gone in has been tax deductible, um, the growth during the lifetime of the retirement account, as we talked about, is tax deferred. Uh, so anything that comes out by nature is subject then to US income tax, both at federal level and potentially a state level, depending on where the individual is physically resident. There's a really important point to bear in mind, which is based around the age of the individual. If they're under the age of 59 and a half, they have very limited access to the retirement account without incurring uh, what is essentially a penalty for an early withdrawal of those funds. If you think about why, why are these um, tax savings, these tax preferred vehicles in place, it's to encourage people to save for retirement. 59 and a half is the magic age that um, the IRS rules is when you can retire. So post that age, you can take funds um, from a retirement account without being subject to this penalty charge. That seems, that, 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 say, that seems, quite, that seems quite low, 59 and a half. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very much so. But assuming yeah. you're assuming you you're on the, the wrong side of 60 in this case, then you're you're straight into income tax. And naturally, when people do retire, then that's where their income profile starts to drop off. And so we often find that people who are then retiring and, and drawing on their retirement accounts uh, as a means to fund their ongoing expenditure are offering in a lower tax bracket. Uh, than they were during the period of employment. Um, and that's also where the fact that you've had tax deferred growth on any of the activity within the retirement account um, really bears some fruit. And so if that person, let's say that person has used their IRA during their lifetime, let's say they've exceeded the age of 59, although if you tell me it makes a difference, uh, we can come back to that alternative. Let's say they've exceeded their, uh, their, their that minimum age and they've passed away. That, that um uh, the IRA has been left for the benefit of a further individual who is then themselves drawing down upon that. You're going to tell me that the income tax treatment 
in the US, uh, certainly for the purposes of this example, are still going to be the same. Presumably, that 59 uh, and a half age uh, requirement is no longer applicable because it's not that person's IRA. If they're taking, you know, if the son and the son's in their 40s, they're just taking distributions. It's just income tax at their marginal US rate as it normally would be. Yeah. Couldn't summarise that any better. Either, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, look, I, I, I listen to the accountants when they tell me things. Um, <laughs> so let's say that person is uh, has now come to the UK. Let's say that uh, account holder, the account holder in question, has you know immigrated to the UK. They've taken no pre-immigration planning advice from you know the good people at Blick Rothenberg or the good people at Colley Bristow, and they've just landed in the UK. They're now a UK resident with some UK uh, uh, tax exposure, and they're still looking to be uh, living off of their pension, let's say. So I now know that they are a UK resident. They are, by default, taxed on the arising basis, so the funds out of the US are going to be taxed on an arising basis. Um, they're also, let's say they're a US citizen, so they're also continuing to be taxed uh, in the US on a on a rising basis. So in those circumstances, how does the US and the UK uh, income tax in- in- interaction work? And who is going to have the first bite of the cherry as to the tax? Okay, so we, we, we assume we're going to ignore the potential for the individual to claim their emissions basis and they're paying worldwide tax in various jurisdictions. No I, think, I think so for these purposes. No, no doubt you touched on their emissions basis in, in other podcasts. Um, if we think first about an annuity stream, so there's regular payments, regular withdrawals from the retirement account, um, then we look to the treaty, uh, and the treaty says because the individual is resident in the UK, the UK has the primary right to tax. Because the individual is a US citizen, the savings clause bites, which says that the US still has the right to tax the same income, uh, but that the US will give a credit for the UK income tax that the individual suffers. And it is income tax in the UK that the individual suffers. Uh, so the, the treatment is um, is, all, well, is is exactly the same between the two jurisdictions. It's income tax based on amounts received from the pension. Yeah. And that's going to be the marginal rate in the UK. It's going to be the marginal rate in the US. And uh, on the assumption, because as a rule of thumb, UK income tax rates at the date of recording are slightly higher than federal um, than federal uh, US income tax levels, there should then be a complete credit for the US tax that would otherwise be uh, levied on that person as a US taxpayer. Presumably, if the US decided to um, raise their income tax rates and the US income tax rate exceeded the marginal rate of tax in the UK, then you may have a small uh, additional bit of tax to pay in the US for that sort of proportionate uh, tranche over the UK tax already paid. Yeah, that's right. Essentially, yeah. subject to timing differences, and there's some important points around when the UK tax is physically paid um, to make sure we get the right credit on the correct US tax year. Essentially, the individual is just going to pay the higher of the two. And it's probably less likely, but uh, I'm aware that some of the states, particularly, say, states like California, can be quite sticky and losing residency on a state level can be a little difficult. And so it is possible, let's say, to be simultaneously resident in a US state like California and be a resident of the UK. So it is possible for an individual to be subject to both UK taxation on the one side and federal and state taxation in the US. Am I right that the US 
uh, UK tax treaty doesn't allow for state taxation. It's only at a federal level where you get a foreign tax credit for tax that you paid in the UK. Yeah, that, that's right, Aidan. So we're, we're dealing with those two different systems in the US, federal level and then a state level. The treaty only covers tax at a federal level. The states are, have got their own completely separate rules and typically don't follow the treaty at all. So if we're dealing with an individual that for whatever reason is still resident in a particular state, then we've got to be very careful with the state tax implications too. In which case, the take the takeaway point for uh, our respective clients, anyone listening to this episode is, uh, if you are leaving the US and you intend to come to the UK, do have a think very carefully about whether the state that you're uh, coming from have rules that can consider you a, a resident of that state after you have physically left that location. I, I cite California as an example, but there are other states uh, who uh, who have not dissimilar rules. We should talk about we should talk about lump sum payments actually. Um, we should talk about lump sum payments. Let's talk about lump sum payments first. Before we move on to that that last scenario. Um and that's important because the treatment can be very different. Um so let's let's take that same scenario, US citizen resident in the UK. Um they haven't yet drawn anything from their retirement account, but they're thinking about doing so. Um we can we can look at the treaty and look at whether they're taking what the treaty would define as a lump sum from a lump sum one-off payment from their retirement account and in certain circumstances that can change the treatment that we've just talked about um, and change that by reference to giving the us the sole right to tax that lump sum payment and the uk having no right to tax the lump sum payment so that can often be quite powerful, beneficial planning for our UK resident American, because as we've talked about, US federal tax rates are often lower than what the individual's effective UK tax rate might be. So there could be a potential material saving by looking at a lump sum payment from a US retirement account. Um, because the effective rate of US tax is going to be lower than what they'd otherwise pay in the UK. And that uh, right of taxation uh, to the US is because the account is situate in the US. So income tax, uh, uh, UK has primary taxing right on income distributions because they're a resident of the UK. The US retains the primary taxation right over lump sum payments because the account is situate in the uh, US. That's sort of, that's the, the way it breaks down, isn't it? That's the premise, yeah. yeah. That's right. So, um, as, and yeah, this, this point around what is a lump sum is... Is often just um, discussed um, to, to great length within the accounting world and in the legal profession as well. Um, but yes, we can very often find ourselves in a position where the US has that sole right to tax and the UK has no right to tax at all. I mean, uh, the my experience of lump sum versus uh, income payments is is generally that it's quite hard to show something as being a lump sum payment if you're not effectively if you're doing anything other than sort of liquidating and withdrawing all the funds from that account in one go. If there's any degree of sort of regularity or, 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 or distributions are broken down over a series of years, it can be a challenge sometimes to persuade the authorities that you are taking a lump sum payment. Uh, is that the sort of the, the general experience that you've also had? Um, yeah, I agree with that. Agent subject to, if, if we're in that place where someone hasn't taken anything, then we might get comfortable around an initial lump sum um, within a series of smaller payments starting, you know, in the next two, three years. Um, 
we might we might find ourselves with some element of comfort around that um but yeah if there's any degree of regularity with payments um, and similarity on size then you know it's very hard to get squeeze that within to this very tight definition of what a lump sum is sure um coming to the uh third scenario that we uh teed up uh, previously let's say we have the scenario of, of an individual passing away in the US and we'll come on to the consequences of death and how we deal with them in a second. But let's say we now have an individual in the UK who is benefiting from someone else's IRA that's been left to them. And that person in the UK is not themselves a US taxpayer. So now we are dealing solely with the, uh, well, the individual in question has solely a, a, a UK tax liability normally, but from an account that is in the US. How is... Um, the, the HMRC in, in the UK going to tax that pension? And to what extent is the IRS going to expect tax to be withheld at source on the IRA, um, let's call them income distributions here? Okay. Um, yeah, so we're now dealing with a non-US person who has access to a US retirement account. Um, and if we're thinking about income distributions, let's say it's an annuity, um, then the treaty says the UK has the sole right to tax and that the US has no right to tax the, the income distributions. So distributions subject to UK income tax in the hands of the recipient as of when they draw down on the account. Um, you rightly mentioned US withholding tax as something to be aware of and be cognizant of because the default position for a US finance, financial institution, and we, we do struggle in practice to, to alter their view on this, um, is that while I'm making a payment to someone who isn't an American, I must withhold US tax. Um, and typically that is, is, is at a rate that um, we then need to think about going back and getting a refund of that tax by filing a tax return for the non-American, who otherwise wouldn't need to think about filing anything at all with the US authorities. Um, so you do you do have to file a a US tax return for them, not the fault of the Americans consider the non-resident alien. In order to get that back, you don't just the, the IRS won't talk to HRC and say, oh well, they've just paid tax. You do actually have to go out and file a tax return, which can be, you know, not a uncostly exercise. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in in a scenario where there's been some US withholding, um, the only thing to do is to file a, a non-resident return to go and get a refund of that withholding, which yeah, is is costly, time consuming. Um, etc. Where we where we can have some success is trying to get the right withholding forms and documentation in place with the US payor, with the US financial institution before they physically make the payment. Um, typically that's a W8 Ben for a non-US individual. And provided we can get that in place um, and convince them of the position under the treaty that, that we've just described and just talked about, then we can find ourselves in a place where there is no US withholding and as a result nothing that the beneficiary needs to do in terms of filing anything with the US authorities. The W8 Ben may be my least favourite tax sort of form I've ever seen come out of the IRS. It is an absolute pain in the backside. And I say that as someone who was an American for many years and had to file an F bar every year, I think the W8 Ben might still take it as the most annoying tax form. <laughs> you may feel different. You've probably seen all of them. I haven't seen all of them. Aid of uh, accountants, we love all tax forms. <laughs> every single form makes you very excited. Um, <laughs> so um, in that scenario, that individual has um, the... UK tax uh, liability 
uh, first and foremost. Uh, let's say you know, they've inherited their uh, the IRA or the rights to draw down on that IRA, but they have decided, you know what, this is all an absolute faff. Um, I, I, I just like the funds out of that IRA. And let's say, going back to your distinction previously, they do decide they want to take that lump sum payment immediately. Um, presumably, that kicks the right of taxation back to the US because we're now back on a lump sum payment um, out of a US financial product. So there the US will levy that tax first. And so there's still the need to file that tax return. And the UK just gives the credit. Am I right? Well, yeah, in, in that scenario, so there's a lump sum payment to a non-American from the US a retirement account. And yeah, you're right. The right to tax switches to the US. Uh, and in that scenario, actually, the UK doesn't have the right to tax. Um, so we can be in a place where, again, not dissimilarly to the second scenario we were talking about, where an effective tax rate might be might be slightly more um slightly more amenable because the US rates are lower than UK tax rates. Um, so and, that's your, and that's your effective planning you were talking about. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, yeah, again, there'll be some withholding at source naturally because we're talking about a lump sum and there's there's no mechanism to reduce that withholding because we know this is going to be subject to US, US tax. It's not going to be subject to UK tax. Um, typically, that withholding is at a flat rate. Um, and so we can often, because of the fairly favourable graduated bands of tax in the US, what we would then suggest is working with the individual to file one US tax return to go and get a refund of a portion of the US tax that's been withheld at source. So we, in that scenario, we're not thinking about the UK rules about 25% on all the, oh yeah, the, the, the UK pension rules that people may be more familiar with from a UK perspective, because those have been overridden by the treaty. It's a US IRA. We are only concerned about the US rules. Absolutely right. Thought I'd just get checked with that. Um, I think drawing that first part to a close, what is abundantly clear uh, is that um, every scenario is different. There are there are a number of variables. What is the manner in which someone wants to take a distribution? Where does the person live that is taking that distribution? Are they a US taxpayer in spite of the fact that they perhaps live in the UK? And I think it is really important that people uh, take away from this point to speak to your accountants, hopefully your accountants being Blake Rothenberg, uh, in each of these cases to work out where tax may be due and in that jurisdiction, whether there is a credit available or indeed you can override the rights taxation entirely. Um, I, I don't have to plug John's work for him, but he and I have worked together for a number of years, and I'm sure he would be delighted to help anyone listening. I'd like to draw this episode to a close as a part one. Um, in part two, John and I will be looking at uh, the uh, consequences of uh, dying while holding an IRA, both from a tax and a US and UK succession perspective. Uh, so we'd love you to join us in part two. Uh, if you can't join us, thanks very much for joining us over this episode, uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time.